Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud with me, your host, Natasha Turner. Uh, today I'm joined by the Right Honourable Chris Skidmore, former Minister and Chair of the UK Net Zero Review and Conservative MP for Kingswood. So we're going to be talking primarily about the UK sustainable finance industry's role in the race to net zero, but um, just as it's quite topical, Chris, I mean, the news on Friday of there being no bids for, bids for onshore wind farms in the government's latest auction, what, what was your reaction to that? Well, I think I had two initial thoughts. The first is actually the overall auction round was remarkably successful at generating really low-cost energy, both in solar and onshore uh, wind also. And we've just seen the government uh, decide to you know, commit to uh, planning changes on onshore wind in the energy bill, uh, and that is you know, very welcome. However, you know, we know we need to commit to 50 gigawatts of offshore wind uh, by 2050. Then, you know, that pathway is set uh, as part of our new net zero uh, grid by 2035 uh, proposals. And the government's known about this for a long time. You know, when I was receiving evidence for the net zero review, I was told repeatedly that AR5 coming up would you know, be very challenging for suppliers, partly because of rising inflation costs, rising supply chain costs. And actually, the net zero review you know, called for the contracts for difference to be reformed uh, in light of not just looking for the lowest cost of electricity and the strike price, which is you know, not possible uh, at the moment. And uh, that's the reality uh, that we sort of face. It's not some sort of existential sort of crisis. It's just recognizing that we need to have value recognized in the overall supply chain if we're going to be able to commit to onshoring jobs you know, in uh, offshore wind, uh, particularly in the Celtic North Sea, uh, where there is a supply chain emerging around the southwest of England also. So you know, I, I, I feel that the government was warned and was told about this repeatedly and could have acted sooner. But now again, they need to wake up and take stock and ensure that it gets back on track. But uh, you know, I, I feel that ultimately uh, this is a, a blip but one that could have been avoided. Mm -hmm. And what's the role of private finance here? So I've heard you speak previously about um, ways to kind of unblock some of the holdups to development of grid capacity and things like that, which um, perhaps seem relevant in this uh, situation. But, um, you know, does private finance kind of need to sit tight until these blocks are unblocked or is there something that they can be doing? Well, I think in a number of the blockages, there are also private finance opportunities to to uh, invest uh, in you know, net zero infrastructure projects that unlock the decarbonisation opportunities in the future. Uh, now, whether that's to look at battery storage capability, whether that's sort of hydrogen electrolyzers, there's a large number of areas where yeah, we are going to see uh, rapid uh, deployment of these technologies. Uh, and yeah, we've seen from solar and wind uh, almost an exponential rise in the S-curve in, in the past three years. And we're going to see exponential rises in these additional supporting technologies. The interesting thing is that, you know, the permitting, the permissions that you know, need to be required, actually, once that's unblocked, these things take off pretty rapidly. Uh, so actually, if I was an investor, which, you know, I wish I could be, but sort of, uh, you know, if I had the money to be able to invest in these projects, I'd be looking very closely now at jumping on board of the opportunities to, to scale up because, you know, Everyone recognises yeah, where the blockages are. And, you know, these 15-year delays, the Windsor Review that was published in the summer has now sort of highlighted how we can half this. Uh, and, you know, the, the opportunity to be able to move very rapidly uh, it, you know, is, is one that will come only once uh, and so should be taken uh, you know, sooner rather later. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and it's something our readers talk about a lot, but there is still um, perhaps a little no getting away from the kind of generally risk averse industry that this is. And and I mean, perhaps a bit of a, a catch-22 with with who's going to take that first step, whether it be the government or regulators or, or the industry. Um, and yeah, you know, even an awareness of some of those opportunities that you've spoken about, is that kind of enough to get get the this side of of the industry going? Well, we do need the four C's, as I identified, you know, in the net zero review. Yeah, you know, I spoke about setting out long term clarity, certainty, consistency, and continuity of policy frameworks, and with that, obviously, underpinning legislation, regulation, to unlock that fifth C, which is you know market confidence, ultimately, in investing in the UK. Uh, and so to achieve that, getting governance requirements right is really important. You know, I think we've seen the government sort of commit on the back of their response to the Net Zero Review to setting up your know, local Net Zero Forum to work with government and local authorities to work with a regulators forum. Again, a lot of this is about making sure we don't have too many cooks in the room and left hand, right hand sort of scenarios where people are overlapping, you know, creating inefficiencies or duplicating one another's efforts. Um, but you know, we do need to also look at things like the planning system, the national planning policy framework when it comes to buildings, you know, the, the uh, uh, future building standards that you know, are emerging uh, and can't be delayed. But once that certainty has been provided, it'll give that level playing field then uh, for investors to recognise that this is here to stay. Um, but yeah, that, that requires the government to you know, just move faster than, than where it is at the present. And I'm, I'm optimistic that it will be moving fast. Yeah, I, I do feel you know, the government's response where they committed to about 100 or 129 recommendations, the Net Zero Review, sparking off a number of consultations, setting up a number of task forces, like, for instance, you know, they're agreeing to a uh, 70 gigawatts of, of solar uh, deployment by 2035. You know, you know, that's now sort of up and running in terms of pushing forwards, you know, energy efficiency task force, thinking about how we're going to get uh, energy demand down by 15% by 2030. You know, in lots of ways, I think sort of, you know, the, the, the government is now committing uh, to pathways, which obviously business investors have wanted them to do for a long time. Yeah, the net zero strategy published in 2021 didn't give that initial certainty. But I think now we are seeing the formulation of these sort of pathways where we can, I, yeah, as an investor, see where to put your chips. I've seen that a lot of those recommendations have been taken forward. And, you know, a lot of the industry was was obviously very supportive of, of that net zero review. And I guess hopefully not something that could be disrupted by um more shorter term political cycles. I think you know, net zero was built upon long term political certainty. You know, I, I became the minister that signed net zero into law for the UK to become the first G7 country to do so. I secured our presidency of COP26 on the back of that net zero commitment because we had the Climate Change Act and that was supported cross party. Actually, you know, the Conservatives and opposition pushed the Labour Party to go further on decarbonisation, 80% emissions reduction. So you know, net zero was built on that as 100%. You know, emissions reduction on 1990 levels and uh, I think what you will see is and what I've called for in that long-term pathways is to de is to depoliticize to get the sort of obviously let's have a political debate over the costs and consequences of net zero yeah making sure that we are honest about the you know, what the transition will involve but let's not deliberately obfuscate let's not deliberately create misinformation around the transition renewable technologies are cheaper than fossil fuel alternatives actually getting off gas and oil will 
be cheaper and put more money in the back of a consumer or a householder. Uh, and that's yeah, one of the key narratives we've got to get across is net zero is this benefit. You know, it is not a cost. And trying to demonstrate the economic opportunities where we have the time was all about what the uh, net zero review was about. But in terms of the politics, you know, we've got a general election around the corner. You know, whoever is the next administration, whether that's Tory, whether that's Labour, you know, they'll be the government that has the stewardship over a number of key uh, benchmarks. Because net zero isn't about 2050, it's about 2030. You know, the global stock take um, report that was published last week uh, by the UN demonstrates that we've got to meet yeah, 43% emissions reductions globally by 2030. The UK is committed to 68% emissions reductions. If we go off track on our electric vehicle mandate of no new uh, petrol diesel cars sold from 2030, yeah, we will not meet our emissions uh, reduction target, or we won't, won't meet our national determined contribution. If we don't ramp up heat pump production for 600,000 heat pumps by 2028, again, will fall further off track. And every time we go further off track every single year, it's just going to cost more and more to achieve an outcome that we need to achieve anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned COP26 there and, and the global stock take, which, um, you know, will be, be a focus of COP28 this year. I mean, another thing, you know, for the industry from COP26 was the creation of GFANS and, you know, some of these these massive kind of industry alliances. Um, and again, that will be another focus of COP28 um, with the kind of transition frameworks that some of these groups are starting to um, kind of come out with to advise the industries on, on how to do that. But there has been criticism that the formation or, or the influence of these groups perhaps allows for governments or regulators to, to rest on their laurels a little bit when it comes to um, this process. I mean, what, what do you make of that kind of argument? I mean, the Net Zero Review was clear that there were a number of international frameworks being uh, developed, the International Sustainability Stand uh, Standards Board uh, framework that we, the UK government should adopt. You know, we can't do this in isolation from the rest of the world. So we do need to take a, an international interconnected approach for these to work. Um, but at the same time, part of me sort of feels that you know, if we leave it just to governments to get on with things, we're now at COP28, it's 28 years since we saw sort of uh, the U UN declaration and Kyoto you know, being formulated. And, you know, we've seen a number of failures from politicians and politicians will come and go. Um, you know, there'll be, I think, another five presidential elections by the time we hit net zero. You know, there'll be changes of political parties running the UK government as well. And actually getting politicians off the stage uh, and ensuring that we create new net zero markets, I think, means that net zero is here to stay, that it's an economic reality. And it's only by uh, invoking the power of trade and economic growth and all that what that means for ensuring you know, establishing international supply chains, international export opportunities, you're really going to embed net zero. So partly I sort of feel, you know, Getting the private sector, finance sector to step up has been obviously one of the key crowning achievements of Glasgow. We can't you know, ignore them. You know, we've got to make sure that those high carbon industries also, you know, we can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Uh, we've got to ensure that everyone decarbonizes uh, at scale. And actually, when it comes to uh, financial uh, investment in net zero, it should follow emissions reductions above all. And that's making sure you know, that we set the frameworks as government to deliver on that so that actually we don't get mission creep and that actually you know, what looks like a good idea is potentially not going to deliver the basic outcome, which is you know, CO2 emissions reductions in real term, real time. You know, the real challenge, I guess, for the financial sector, the corporate world is not to 
you know, sort of go down a rabbit hole of you know, investing in certain products that actually turn out to be uh, you know, less impactful, you know, actually will then lead to gen you know, accusations of greenwashing. How do we ensure that we can work you know, cooperatively and in partnership as government with the private sector to make sure then the private sector has confidence, just in the same way they need confidence to invest uh, you know, in the UK green economy, that they've got confidence to to invest in these frameworks, knowing that they're not going to be called short in 10 years time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, arguably one of those um, technologies that might go down a rabbit hole and, and not be the most effective, people have said is is carbon capture and storage, or certainly that it's scientifically proven, but but too nascent. And yet that's been quite, quite a focus recently. I mean, it was a focus of the spring budget with 20 million pounds um, of support for the development of that, and but also in the EU as well, in the Net Zero Industry Act. Are the right technologies being targeted, in your opinion? I think it's a balance between short-term priorities and that long-term commitment that goes beyond 2050 as well. Both the IEA and the UN have triple C have stated carbon capture will be an essential part of you know decarbonizing for the future. You know, the, the the life of CO2 in the atmosphere being 300 years means that we'll continue to maintain uh, global temperature rises at a certain level. We're going to have to look to remove carbon from the atmosphere in both obviously natural sinks as the Paris Agreement talked about, but also looking at opportunities for technological development. And you know, the challenge, as we know, in the short term is that technological development simply isn't there at the moment. The, the cost of CO2 per tonne isn't, isn't enough to make the financial model sort of stack up. So it relies on subsidy, it relies on tax credits in the, in the 45Q tax credit and, or the price per tonne that the US government's willing to pay for it. But that will change. And that's the, you know, the challenge is understanding that you know, while we may be skeptical about the opportunity that carbon capture or carbon utilization or storage uh, yeah, perceives for the, for the present, in the future it will be there. So we've got to maintain that commitment investment in R&D, both for direct air capture, but also in yeah, making sure we can create the, the regulations for geologic storage in the North Sea that we take forwards the, the carbon capture business models that are part of the energy bill in the UK as well. You know, all that's relevant, but what we can't do is, is simply think that this will be a magic solution down the tracks that's going to somehow invent our way out of this challenge. Yeah, we have the technologies, the renewable technologies of today that can help ensure that we reduce our use of gas and fossil fuels for the future. We must take now because otherwise we're just going to continue to lock in emissions uh, for the future and make our job uh, even harder. So you know, it's not an either or, but it can't, you know, it can't be an either or. We can't simply put aside investment in renewables and decide that that investment should go into carbon capture. We've got to run both currently, but predominantly, you know, to achieve that 20 to 30 goal. This is all about uh, focusing on the deployment of renewables and the phase down of fossil fuels. And what I've said in the past is there's no such thing as a new net zero coal mine. There's no such thing as a new net zero gas and oil field. You know, we can't be using carbon capture and storage as an excuse for continued uh, production of, of fossil fuels, new production of fossil fuels. You know, we need to phase out the use of fossil fuels, and that will happen as we decarbonize rapidly both our transport and building systems. But yeah, you know, by no means do we sort of then give ourselves a free pass thinking that we can just continue into the distant future opening up new oil wells because they're going to be decarbonized through carbon capture. Do you have any um, hopes for the next budget, which has just sort of recently been announced as well when it comes to net zero? Yeah, so the Chancellor has announced uh, the 22nd of November for the autumn statement, the next big fiscal event in the UK. 
uh, when the government responded to the net zero review, they didn't take forward a number of the uh, recommendations around tax incentives, around fiscal measures, investment measures that directly related to the Treasury's responsibility. And the Chancellor said at the time of the net zero review that when it came to responding to the Inflation Reduction Act, when it came to responding to some of those specific measures uh, in the net zero review, that they would do so at the next fiscal event. So I'm sort of waiting with bated breath to see what comes forward, particularly given how important that is. I think there's a particular importance around setting out long-term investment plans. So we've been bedeviled in the UK by the spending review process that only commits to you know, key projects for the lifetime of a spending review, traditionally three years, it's recently just a year sometimes. So, you know, the boiler upgrade in the UK is now being committed to 2028, you know, sort of, which is a bit long, you know, five years, but sort of we need 10 years, like the KFW program in Germany. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act 45Q tax credit is guaranteed to the 1st of January 2033. You know, if that's the case, then the global net zero rate is accelerating, companies will relocate, jobs will go elsewhere. If we can't commit uh, to uh, these core investment plans over the long term, which is what I really need to see in the autumn, then you know, I, I really fear for the, you know, the UK being able to retain uh, that private investment uh, for the future. Mm -hmm. And another thing that the industry will be looking to for at the end of the year um, is the UK green taxonomy. Um, which, you know, as far as I'm aware, is, is still expected by the end of this year, um, despite some delays. Um, do you have uh, kind of hopes for that or thoughts or, or of what that is going to contain when it's finally released? The issue around taxonomy is something I addressed in a smaller separate report I did for the Treasury uh, with the UK's hydrogen champion, Dane Toogood. Uh, and, you know, there is an opportunity potentially to obviously both look at the EU's taxonomy look where we want to align and look where we want to disalign. And there may be opportunities around the role of nuclear in, in sort of production of, of hydrogen. There's a sort of opportunity for us to um, you know, really sort of set out maybe sort of a distinct opportunity of, of understanding you know, what is high carbon, what is not high carbon. We've talked about you know, potentially you know, making this an outcomes-based measure in the UK. So it's on a sliding scale around um, you know, focusing on the intensity of, of, of carbon products you know, when it comes to hydrogen, the intensity of the CO2 used to make the hydrogen. So I think there's an opportunity, and we've seen that, I think, with the government's commitment to Horizon, but not deciding to go into your atom. Actually, you know, the fusion world has decided they might be better off out of that commitment. So it's, it's an interesting time, but I think the key thing is to follow you know, the sector's expert guidance on this and not make it politicised. And that's the, yeah, we've seen these delays happen sometimes for political purposes. I mean, we just need to make sure it's evidence-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of highlighting the sort of second mover advantage after the EU that, that might be had here. And um, yeah, I guess we'll be looking forward to seeing what's, um, what's in that final consultation, I suppose. Um, are there any uh, sort of final words that you uh, have for our, our listeners? So I think when it comes to you know, the future of our net zero pathways, um, we've seen this year the energy bill, I hope, will catalyze you know, a lot of additional industry certainty in some of the hydrogen business models, the uh, sort of net zero hubs that you know, have been established. 
I really hope that yeah, we're able to prioritize what net zero you know, is about, which is obviously focusing on those industries that can deliver the greatest emissions reduction in real time. So the, net, the review points out that I think 6% of all businesses are responsible for 80% of all gas use. You know, there's a real opportunity yeah, to, to be able to, to, to shift the dial. When it comes to demand as well, that's another critical one around buildings that we've seen decarbonization of buildings, you know, being held up as a, as a not just a opportunity to deliver uh, emissions reductions, but now real savings to households actually to deliver on that energy security. So trying to, you know, focus this sort of net zero argument on, on one that is economically uh, advantageous, but also delivers not just co-benefits, but critical benefits to the UK economy is something I think that, yeah, we've got to really focus on now. There's going to be a general election next year. Net zero is clearly going to be a topic of, of keen discussion. As I said, whoever forms the next government will be have, have the stewardship of that national determined contribution, whether we commit our, meet our climate commitments by 2030. So, you know, working hard, you know, and, and as investors, you know, and as, as it, you know, financial communities that you know, work to safeguard capital, what are those opportunities in articulating them, not just in terms of emissions reduction, but in terms of economic benefits? I think we've all got a responsibility to continue to push on this for the future. Well, and a, and a more positive note to end on. So thanks very much. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.